we're, we're back looking once again at the suffering of Jesus and specifically looking at the crucifixion, but, but even more specifically looking at this one um, statement where Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Last week after the teaching, because we taught, maybe you remember, on the crucifixion last week, uh, somebody came up to me and said, okay, yeah, that was really, that was great, but tell me about, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I said, I will tell you next Sunday. And so, uh, that's, uh, and so we're here to talk about this today. This has been called the cry of dereliction. And the word here, dereliction, means abandonment. And so this has been referred to as the cry of abandonment. Jesus is crying out, uh, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Now, there's questions that we have to ask when we come to this. So let me just warn you in advance that today it's going to be a little bit different than normal in that today it's going to be a little bit like you're sitting in a theology class. So um, think a little bit more about a classroom this morning. Uh, obviously, sometimes a classroom can be really dry and boring. So hopefully that's not going to be the experience that we have today. Um, but we're going to look at some things that are, are rather technical. And I want to quote to you from um, at least one theologian, if not a couple, because I really want us to get hold of what is happening here. Because it's important for us as Christians to think rightly and precisely about the things that we believe. Of course, Christianity is a, is a knowledge-based faith. And there are things that we need to know. And we need to know things for a number of reasons. But one of the reasons we need to know the right things about God is so that we can express those things to other people well. And also that we can have the right understanding of God when we're seeking him and when we're worshiping him. And so throughout the long history of the church, there have been uh, people, you know, commonly called theologians or scholars, um, who have a lot of times, you know, taken... And, and really delve deeply into certain questions that some people would never even think to ask, but they thought to ask them and delve deeply into them. And the church has been better because of the efforts that they put forth. And so um, that's what we're doing today. We're, we're delving down a little more deeply into what these words um, why Jesus uttered these words and what they meant. And so let's start with um, why did Jesus say this? Well, there's a couple of reasons, but the first one would be that since he's quoting from a psalm, these are the very first words to what we know as the 22nd Psalm. But the rest of the psalm goes on to literally describe what was transpiring there as Jesus was upon the cross. And so I think that one of the reasons 
for the quotation was to direct those there back to the psalm so they could understand that what was happening was not just a random crucifixion, but it was something that was predicted by the prophets so long ago. It was predicted by David 1,000 years earlier. And it's in that 22nd Psalm. First service, I read through much of it. I'm not going to read it. I would encourage you to uh, maybe look through it on your own. But, it, but it's in that Psalm that we have these words. They pierced my hands and my feet, and they, um, they cast lots for my garments. And you remember, as we read through this account, that's exactly what happened. Of course, they pierced his hands and his feet. He's being crucified. But then, remember the soldiers, they didn't want to tear his garment, so they cast lots for it. And so those are the things that are described in that 22nd Psalm. And I believe that part of the reason that Jesus said what he said was so that people, again, would know that this was not some random event, but this was the event that God had prophesied all those centuries earlier. And right at the very uh, end of that expression of suffering in the 22nd Psalm, then David, speaking by inspiration of the Spirit, he says these words. He says, you have heard my prayer. So he describes the intense suffering. My tongue clings to the roof of my mouth. Um, my body is, is dried up like a potsherd. I'm surrounded by these uh, mockers and these scoffers. All of these things he, he describes the situation uh, as he's ex experiencing it now. But then at the end of that point, he says, you have heard my prayer. And that, that's important because what, where we're going to go with this, we need to realize that Jesus, even though he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's still, even from that point on, uh, in fellowship with God. So first reason he's pointing back to the Psalms so people can read it and believe. Secondly, he is exp expressing what truly seemed to be the case. And in one sense, uh, was the case at that moment. So, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This seemed to be the case. Jesus is expressing what seemed to be the reality to him. God had abandoned him, and, and the, what he was experiencing was kind of evidence of that. Because God, if you were with me, I wouldn't be in this predicament that I'm in. So in one sense, uh, that, that was the case. But yet, in another sense, it wasn't exactly what some people think and teach. And so, although Jesus was forsaken by the Father... We have to make sure we understand just exactly what that meant and what it didn't mean. And that's what I want to focus on. And that's where we're going to get into the more uh, uh, theological aspect of our time here together today. So here's a question. What really happened that caused Jesus to cry out? What, what was actually going on? Now, there, there is... A teaching, and it's it's very popular. It's very um, common um, amongst evangelical preachers and some theologians. 
And, and the teaching is essentially that, that Christ was abandoned to the point that if you really thought deeply about it, you would, you would understand that it would necessitate a broken trinity. A broken trinity. Think about that for a moment. So God is triune. God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And some interpretations of what's happening here is that the, the trinity itself was broken up because God, the Father, was now uh, turning away completely. There's a separation. There's a tearing that takes place. And, and this is communicated by various people in a number of different ways. And so let me just read a few uh, sentences to you that express uh, this idea. So the father rejected the son. That's a simple one. Um, one would say that as um, God exhausted his wrath Upon the son, he then completely abandoned him. Uh, some would put it, the father hid his face from the son. Uh, others would communicate it, uh, Jesus became sin. Therefore, the father's wrath was poured out on Jesus. Um, another way of expressing it, the physical pain Christ suffered in his passion was nothing in comparison to the spiritual and relational pain that Christ endured as he was separated from the Father. Uh, God cursed Jesus with damnation. Uh, the eternal communion between the Father and the Son was ruptured on that fateful day. It all amounts to this. The Trinity was broken. Now, is that really what happened? That's the question that we are asking. And these things that I just read, I mean, I think to many of us would sound like, well, yeah, I think that's what happened. But if we go a little deeper and if we try a little harder to understand, first of all, the, the being of God, God as triune, we're going to realize that even though this it sounds kind of right, because I've taught this before. And it, it seemed kind of right, but it always seemed kind of like, I don't know. Because, it, you know, you just think about it. Like, how could, you know, how could God the Father and God the Son, this, this eternal bond, how could that be broken? That, you know, it, even the language itself sort of betrays it right there. The eternal bond broken if something's eternal, it can't be broken. <laughs> the, the very term means that it's endless. It, it doesn't have a beginning. It doesn't have an ending. So, um, but again, this idea that's being expressed in various ways, it's popular among many theologians and Bible teachers, but I think in the end, it is the wrong view. It's the wrong view of what happened on the cross because it amounts ultimately to, as I said, a broken trinity, and a broken trinity is an impossibility. Now, the person who probably is most responsible for this idea in its core, it's spread beyond this person and it's expressed in different ways. But the person that's probably most responsible is a German theologian named uh, Jürgen Moltmann. Jürgen Moltmann is alive today, 93 years old. Um, and he was the one who really sort of championed this idea to the point that he said that on the cross, 
God was at enmity with God. So in his mind, on the cross, God the Father and God the Son become enemies because of the fact that Christ is the sin bearer. And he said that the enmity between them was to the utmost degree. Now, as I've said, um, I myself and most preachers I know have held to some kind of an idea that is like this. That in some mysterious way, God the Father and God the Son were separated from one another at the cross. Now, I can think in my own mind, I, I can think of times where I've actually preached something like this and even said while I was preaching it, I know this seems like it just it seems impossible because, you know, it's one of those things. It's like, how do you get your head around this? And through some deeper study, I have now come to the conclusion that actually, um, as I was thinking, it seems impossible. It, it would be impossible. That, that's really not what was happening. So I'm happy to admit uh, that I have been wrong on this one, and I'm happy to have been corrected in my understanding because I want to understand things as they are um, not as I or somebody else might think they are. But I really want to know, you know, what is the case here? So why should we reject that idea? Why have I myself rejected an idea that I formally had promoted? Well, there are three reasons. And they are um, historical, textual, and theological so let's look at each one. Historical. I found out, again, that this idea is a relatively newer idea and that the earliest Christian thinkers and writers and scholars beginning in the very early centuries of the history of the church right up to the Reformation that none of them thought this. And if you go back to... Um, say, the, the fourth century, and you go back to names like Athanasius or Ambrose or Augustine or Cyril of Alexandria, um, Gregory Nazianzus, John of Damascus. Uh, these are all some of the early scholars of the church, and none of them thought that this is what was taking place. None of them thought that this cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, meant that there was a tearing of the, the Trinity. None of them thought that. So history, um, right on up through John Calvin at, during the time of the Reformation in the um, 16th century, they, they all rejected this idea. Um, None of them saw this as, as this kind of a tearing. So historically, there's plenty to look at that would disagree with it. Secondly, textually. And, and textually is really, in some ways, the most important. Because when we say textually, we're talking about the biblical text itself. And here's the question. Does the biblical text teach that when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, that there was a rending of the Trinity. Does the text teach that? No, it doesn't teach it. That is something that's read into the text. 
and well-intendedly read into the text, I think. But nevertheless, it's read into the text. This occurs, this phrase occurs three times in the Bible. Psalm 22 is where it originated, as I pointed out, and it's quoted by Matthew, and it's quoted uh, by Mark. Or Mark, Matthew and Mark, in their crucifixion account, they include that, where Luke and John do not include it. But in each one of those passages, there's nothing in the text itself that says this is what happened. So you see, this is where you come to uh, what sometimes does happen. You read something into the text because of a preconceived idea. But the text doesn't say it. As a matter of fact, when you look at the text, like I already pointed out, when you look at Psalm 22, it starts with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But halfway through and after the expressions of the suffering are, are, are communicated, then it says, um, you have heard my prayer. So the psalmist, David in this case, but prophetically speaking, um, although it begins with, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's obvious that he doesn't believe that God has really forsaken him because he says, you have heard my prayer. But the same thing is true with Jesus. When you look at Jesus on the cross, he utters this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But as you follow from that point on, Jesus continues in communion with the Father to the very point of death. And at the point of death, he says, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. So you see, if there was actually a rending, if now at this point, the Father and the Son were separated from one another, God no longer has a son. He's disconnected himself from the Son. It would hardly make any sense that Jesus would say, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And so textually, there's no support for this idea that there was a, a severing of the relationship between the father and the son. And then thirdly and finally, theologically. And to look at the theological perspective, I want to quote to you from an author named Thomas H. McCall. And he wrote a book called Forsaken, the Trinity and the Cross and Why It Matters. And this is, this is why it matters. It matters because the, this idea is inconsistent or contrary even to what the doctrine of the Trinity actually teaches. And it, this is an important thing. Now, I... Here's an interesting thing. I'm currently in a theology class where I'm, I'm studying the, the Trinity. And now I know about the Trinity. I believe in the Trinity. I preached on the Trinity. I have uh, answered questions about the Trinity. But here's what I've discovered. There's a lot of things about the Trinity that I never even thought about. This is where theologians are good. <laughs> they think about things that we don't necessarily think about. And then they force you to think about things. And so as I've had to <clears throat> rethink the Trinity, it's been the rethinking of the Trinity that has brought me to the conclusion that what I thought about what happened on the cross when Jesus cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, that I was wrong. 
It's because of the nature of the Trinity. And so Thomas McCall, he writes this, God is triune, which means the being of God is a relational being. Without communion, it would not be possible to speak of the being of God. The problem here for the broken Trinity model should be obvious. If the being of God is a relational being, and if the relationships are severed, then surely there is no God at all. The triune God of the Christian faith does not exist apart from the relations between the divine persons. If we understand the doctrine of the Trinity properly, we will be in a position to see that saying the Trinity is broken amounts to saying God does not exist. God is eternally Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. To break that eternal unity is impossible. So you see, if we understand the the doctrine of the Trinity as it should be understood, we realize that It's not possible that what we sometimes say or think happened actually did happen. It's not possible that the the Son and the Father could be separated. God is a relational being, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, eternally. And like I said a moment ago, eternally means always, forever. It, It can't be interrupted. And so much so that McCall says, if you could interrupt it, you would end up, there is no God, because this is who God is. Now, one of, the, one of the blessings, practical blessings from the understanding, the proper understanding of the Trinity as relational is it assures us that God really is love. See, the Bible says God is love. Not simply that God is loving, but God is love. His very being is love. But you see, if God is eternally love, then that must mean that there has to be the experience of love with God eternally. But we know that creation, whether it's the creation of mankind and the universe or the angelic creation, we know that these things all came in uh, to, to being at a certain point. But God's eternally love. How is he eternally love? If God is a singular being, then it makes zero sense to say that he's loved because uh, you, there has to be somebody to love in order for love to be a reality. But if you understand this triunity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God is love and there's been this mutual love within the being of God forever. And so that's who God is. And so it's not possible that God could be anything other than that. So, so the idea that, that there was a broken trinity is just, again, simply, it's a wrong understanding. So here's the question then. Well, what was Jesus referring to when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There was a genuine sense in which the son, in fact, was abandoned by the father. But he was abandoned over to death on the cross. That's what he's talking about. Because obviously God could have delivered him from that. God could have saved him from that. But he is delivered over into the hands of sinful people who abuse and humiliate him. And of course, all of this is done because of our sin. 
But, but th- when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what he's referring to. And that's what the, all of those um, names that I mentioned earlier, all of those early scholars, theologians in the early centuries of the church, right up through the Reformation, that's what every one of them understood this to mean. It wasn't really until Moltmann uh, drilled down on it that, that people began to pick up on this new idea. And so Jesus when he cried my god my god why have you forsaken me he was nevertheless at that moment still the beloved son of the father and even though he was abandoned over to death he was still the one in whom the father was fully pleased so there, there's no disunity between the Father and the Son ever. Our salvation has come through the, uh, the working of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all working in unison together. The Father plans for our salvation. The Son is the one who carries out the mission, and the Holy Spirit Uh, aids the son and applies the salvation to us who become saved. So that's what the cry of dereliction was about. And it was through the giving up of his life. So again, another theological idea that we need to drill down more deeply into is the the understanding of the incarnation. So the incarnation is that God became a man. And the man, Jesus Christ, is fully God and fully human simultaneously. And that's really difficult to get your head around. And there are all different kinds of ways people have tried to figure that out and sort it out. And most of the time, they end up with the wrong conclusions. And yet the, the proper understanding, after all the debates have taken place, the proper understanding is that Jesus is fully God, and he's fully human. He's not part God, part human. He's not mostly God and a little bit human. He's, he's both. He's fully God and fully human. And so he comes as the God-man, And he is the one to bridge the gap between humanity and the Father. And he does that through his death on the cross, which meant that he would be delivered over to evil and sinful people, and he would die a death. And in that death, he would be made the sin offering. See, some some of the the wrong view is based on a wrong understanding of Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5.21. 2 Corinthians 5.21, if you have a, say, a King James or a New King James Bible, it says that God made him, speaking of Christ, uh, who knew no sin to be sin for us. So some people say, see, Jesus was made sin. He became sin. 
And of course, God can't look at sin. So that's why God had to turn away. But the real meaning of that is not that Jesus became sin, but that he became the sin offering. He didn't become sin. He didn't have all the filth and vile uh, and perversity of, of all the sinful acts of all of humanity put on himself. So he becomes that. He is the offering for that. His life pays the penalty that those sins incurred. Now, as we finish up, as we read on in the passage, in verse 38, well, verse 37, we read this. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And and what I want to close with today is I want to bring us to the objective that uh, God had in delivering over his son to die for us. What was the objective? Well, to put it simply, the objective was to bring us into a relationship with him. And the significance of verse 38 is that this tearing of the veil in the temple, this is a s- symbolic of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Now, in the temple, and remember, the temple was preceded by a tabernacle, which was a tent. And when God had Moses make this tent, there was... There were, there were two places where the priest would minister. There was the holy place where the priest daily would conduct the ministry. And then there was the most holy place where only the high priest could go. And he could only go once a year. And he could only go with the blood of uh, an animal that had been sacrificed. And between the holy place and the most holy place, there was a veil. And that veil indicated that there was no access to God for the people. They were were shut out from the presence of God. And only the high priest could go once a year with blood. And then the people's sins would be atoned for. They would be covered for the year. But there was no access. That was the, the, the veil itself was saying, you cannot access God. So when Jesus dies, now this is, this is a radical miracle around the crucifixion of Jesus that's rarely talked about. But by the time we get to the New Testament period, by the time we get to the um, period that we're looking at here with Jesus, the second temple period, the, the holy of holies is separated from the sanctuary by a veil that is 18 inches thick. 18 inches thick. It covers that area. It was very, very high because the, the ceilings were elevated in that temple. So I, I, don't, I don't remember the, the actual um, length of it, but, the, but it was 18 inches thick. Now, an 18-inch thick veil 
was letting everybody know that there was absolutely no access to this place. But when Jesus dies, this 18-inch thick veil was torn from the top to the bottom. Can you imagine what it would be like to tear an 18-inch veil? You know, I have found one of the things that I'm discovering about getting old you know what's becoming more difficult for me? Opening like uh, a package. I don't know. It's like, am I getting weaker or do they just seal packages so tightly these days? Like, you know, they're just not going to let you in. Because, you know, I find myself just tearing and nothing's happening. Finally, I just have to go for a knife or scissors or something to get into the thing. But, you know... <laughs> You know, there, there are things that you're just not going to tear. And I'll tell you right now, nobody's going to tear an 18-inch veil except God. And remember, it was torn from the top to the bottom. And what was that about? It's so interesting how the gospel writers had just sort of mention it almost incidentally, almost in passing. But it was so significant because it was the message to everyone that now the way into the presence of God is available for everyone. That's what, that's the message that was sent. And that's what the New Testament goes on to tell us. And that's really the essence of the gospel that we who were at one time outside of God's or access to God because of our sin, that sin has been removed by Jesus. And Hebrews even refers to the veil as being his flesh. And Jesus removed that barrier and he brings us into fellowship with God. And, and let me say this again. I say it a lot, but I'm gonna keep saying it. The whole point of the gospel is to bring human beings into a relationship with God. Now, you know today, it might be true here, but, it, it, but it's absolutely true all over the world. There are people, multitudes of people, I would say, who are sitting in church services of some sort who have no personal relationship with God. They're there, they're at church, they might even be faithfully there, they might be there every week, but they have no personal relationship with God. They are completely missing the point because the whole point was that that veil would be torn and that we could now come into the relationship with God that he intended for us. And, and the Christian life is nothing less than living a life in communion with the creator with the true God, the real God. And that God becomes a reality in your life. And he walks with you and he talks with you and he guides you and he corrects you and he comforts you and he does all of these things. That's, that's the reality of what we have. This week I watched, uh, I saw something with um, a person that I know, Beckett Cook, um, who recently wrote a book about his story and um, his story is, you know, coming out of the gay life. 
and meeting Christ. And he did an interview with a guy named Eric Metaxas. Some of you might know the name Eric Metaxas. Um, if you want to see something so absolutely powerful and something that illustrates the point that I'm talking about here, uh, about a, an encounter with God, watch that on YouTube, Eric Metaxas and Beckett Cook. Um, because as, as Beckett you know, tells his story, the key, the key moment in the story is when he, he comes to a church service by invitation out of curiosity, even though he had formally thought he would never, ever even consider being a Christian. But he comes to a church service and he hears the gospel. And then in his own words, he says that he sat there uh, by himself, all undone, and suddenly God met him in such a way that forever changed him. He said he left that day having actually had an, uh, an encounter, an experience with God. He met God. And his life has never been the same since then. And man, it was such a powerful story. I, I knew some of the story, but when I heard some of those more uh, intimate details, I was just like, well, this is it. And that's why Jesus died. And that's why God allowed him to be delivered over to death so that he would pay the penalty for sin and sin could be removed and the veil would be torn and God would basically be saying through that, everyone's invited, come in, come and know me, come and know the one who made you, come and know the one who loves you, come and know the one who created you with a purpose. That's what the gospel is about. And that's why ultimately Jesus cried out in that loud voice. It was so we would never have to be abandoned by God in the ultimate sense, but we could be reconciled and brought into a relationship with him. And my final word is this. If you're not in a relationship with God through faith in Christ today, this is, this is the purpose for which Jesus came. Don't let that escape you. Don't miss that. Don't settle for religion. Don't settle for church. Don't settle for, I'm going to try to be a better person. None of that is what it's about. It's about coming to know God. And that happens through putting faith in the Christ who died and rose again and lives forever to meet you right where you're at and to work his will into your life. So Lord, we thank you for these amazing truths. And Lord, as we even think about things like the nature of the Trinity, we think about the things that actually did transpire there on the cross. Lord, these things are all so, so wonderful. They're, they're beyond us in so many ways, but yet we thank you that your spirit is the one who teaches us. And as we think on these things and meditate on them, Lord, you reveal yourself to us in ever-increasing ways and how we praise you for that. Help us, Lord, to be people who 
avail ourselves of all that you've offered to us. And mostly, thank you, Lord, that we now have access into your presence. Thank you that the way into the holy of holies has been made through Jesus. And there's no longer that veil that separates us, but we can come now boldly to the throne of grace and find grace and mercy and obtain help in our times of need. Thank you, Lord. And Lord, I would just pray for anyone today who has yet to come into that relationship that brings them into your presence and brings them into intimate communion with you. Lord, would you open their hearts today? Would you draw them to yourself? And Lord, for those of us that have already come through the veil into your presence, Lord, may we continue to grow deeper and deeper in our communion with you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.